Amen. Good morning, all of you. It's kind of sad that summer's over, right? Anybody else sad? I mean, I love the fall, but it always tells me winter's coming. It always bothers me. Uh, just want to say a word of thanks. Um, many of you uh, participated in our 10th year anniversary, and uh, the gift from the church was a, a trip to Martha's Vineyard. And Lisa and I have spent that week at Martha's Vineyard that was arranged for us. It was one of the best vacations we've ever had in our lives. And uh, I ate my way across the island. <laughs> I find I have a great taste for lobster, you know. And I have found the best burger on, on Martha's Vineyard. So uh, if any of you want to know where that is, I can put in a blog or something, I guess. It was delicious. We had, amaz- we had an amazing, amazing time. It was very restful, very lovely there. So thank you, church, for being so good to us and for caring for us and making sure that we had a vacation. That was lovely. We did work on our vacation against Pastor Dan's orders, but uh, uh, we found this uh, coffee shop called Espresso Love that had this incredible outdoor seating area, and we just sat and wrote our uh, devotional for this fall. This fall, we are... We're going to go after, uh, together in a growth group, we're going to go after looking at uh, 1 Samuel. And as we look at 1 Samuel, we're going after the, the way that God met his manifest presence with the kings and prophets. And we're going to, we're going to, I think you're going to see as you go through this together with us, you're going to see how the narratives of the Old Testament really speak to how we are experiencing life today. And uh, I think it's going to be a powerful time together with us. I really enjoyed writing my sections. Lisa writes the bulwark of it, and she gives me a couple weeks to write. And everybody always knows which two are mine and which ones are hers. But, uh, but we sat and we drank coffee and we wrote this week, and it was just a, it was such an enjoyment. And I, I think we're going to have a great fall together. Um, if you're new to us, uh, even this summer we've been doing series. I've been... Uh, I started on a series on faith from um, Hebrews chapter on faith, you know, the faith chapter. And and then I started saying, well, uh, I think I want to do one on love. So we did about six weeks on love, and we went to 1 Corinthians 13. And then I realized, well, you can't do faith and love and not do hope. And so I did been doing the last few weeks on, on hope. The first two weeks were basically on the experience of hope and on, uh, on what biblical hope really is. And then last week I started the heavy part of the series where we talked about hope that confronts death or hope and facing death. And then this week's another heavy week. I, I, I'm not a great scheduler, I guess. I should have done something lighter. But uh, this week we're going to talk about hope and suffering. Uh, so we're going to be a little bit deep here. Now I think it's fitting to talk about hope and suffering when you're before a communion table. I think it's a fitting thing to do because our hope comes out of the suffering of Jesus. And so as we, we look at the scriptures together, we're, we're, gonna really, we're not going to talk about what, you know, what we think hope is. We're going to talk about what does the scripture portray hope to be. So we're going to read a little bit of, of the Bible together. We're going to read uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In the Hope series, I've, I've based almost everything on Paul's definitions or Paul's descriptions of hope, and uh, because he writes so much about it. So we're going to read, it's going to be a little bit of a lengthy passage. We're going to read in chapter 4 uh, from verse 7 to verse 18, and then we're going to jump over to chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, because it's important you kind of get the balance of uh, both the personal uh, and the interpersonal aspects of hope. So would you read the scripture out loud with me? I like it when you read with me. It just lets me know you're actually there. So, uh, all right, so let's read together. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Oops, sorry. Went a little fast. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now we're going to jump over to 12. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have us pray for a second, but before we do, would you just look at verse 10 one more time with me? There are many of us that this is a passage that's important to us. Um, I don't know how many of you memorize scriptures, but I, I memorized nine many, many years ago, probably 35 years ago. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. And I have often returned refer to this for when I am weak, then I am strong. But seldom have I really focused in on this, I am content with. Can you look at that with me for a second? That's not an easy verse, is it? I am content with weaknesses. I doubt any of us can say that easily. Weaknesses make us feel vulnerable. Um, I am content with insults. Now, we experience a lot of insults just living in New York. I mean, all you have to do is make a wrong move when you're driving, and you, your heritage will be insulted. Your gender, everything, anything. I am content with hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Now, how can he say that except that he has a hope that is greater than his suffering? See, this is what we're trying to get at over these six weeks. We're not, trying to, we're not trying to make you feel better, truthfully. We're trying to get you to the place where you have something that's greater than what you're suffering. And so in order to do that, we have to look at the Scriptures carefully, and then we have to allow them to kind of rub in like, a, like salt into our heart where it begins to preserve us and it begins to change us. So let's pray together, and then we'll look at this together. And then, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, um, we come against the spirit of distraction. And we come against the harassing, hindering, and even the kind of haranguing or molesting spirits that try to keep us from any contentment, from any strength, from any sense of, of uh, perspective on our suffering. We welcome the spirit of truth. We welcome the spirit of wisdom and revelation. That, uh, Holy Spirit, you would make your word very powerful and deep and abiding in us today. That would penetrate deeply. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
I, I've been suggesting, and, and um, I've taken it from some really good teachers in this. Uh, Tim Keller especially is very helpful in terms of talking about hope and living in the city and all of these things, the life that we live here in New York. And uh, as I, I've been looking at this really carefully, I, I have seen that the, the dynamic that changes people's lives that makes faith real and, and makes love and experience is when people have hope. And hope isn't just some kind of wishful thinking. In English, we simply use hope to talk about things that are uncertain. I hope that something will happen. I hope that something good is going to happen. The Bible doesn't talk about uncertainty. It talks about that our hope is built on certainties that have not yet happened but are certain. It is a faith-filled look into the future that produces within you an emotion that is sustainable. It becomes a generator of spirituality in your life. People who are hopeless have no generator for their spirituality. They're, They're constantly dry. They're constantly empty. They're constantly looking to others to somehow pull them out of their pit. But people who have hope can be in the deepest, darkest, most difficult of circumstances because they have a certainty about the future. Hope is that which grabs hold of what is certain of the future, holds on to it with all its might, and says, this too will pass. It's something um, that you begin to realize as you study the Scriptures in this, you begin to realize God created you this way. He created you to be a hope-based creature. He did not create you to simply live in the failures of the past or the glories of the past. He did not simply have you live in this one-dimensional, only focused on this moment. He has you as this very, in many ways, a very nuanced, a very complicated being who has a future and a hope that no one can cut off from you. And the more that that future, that ultimate future, and that true future begins to impose upon your present, the more powerful your character becomes, the more, more positive and not optimistic, but in a, a real sense of realism and, and, and genuineness, you begin to have, you have a, an attitude change. And then the other thing is that people who are hopeless have behavior issues that come out of hopelessness. Because when you are hopeless, you no longer care about your morality. When there is no future and there's only a present, then whatever the best option you have at the moment, that's the only one you're you're willing to take, even if it leads you to destruction. There has to be hope. And, And interestingly enough, a lot of people, as I've been around this a long time, a lot of people try to live a fear based religion. And say, if I'm afraid enough of consequences that my behavior will, will bring me, if I'm afraid enough of the consequences, then it will keep me from the behavior. The truth is, though, that that doesn't work. It doesn't work because you cannot live in fear 24-7 and keep your will in check. Because something will come along that will offer you life even though it is, the end of it is death. I mean, I, I don't mean to be you know, so vulgar or crass, but the reason that pornography is so powerful is because when you first experience it, it feels like life. It, it, it gives an adrenaline rush. It gives all kind of endorphins or you know, pleasure hormones. All of this stuff happens, and, and it fools us into thinking it's life, only it leads us into death. Same is true of almost any kind of altering substance that you take. It has an invitation to life. And you may say, well, let's just tell everybody about the consequences of these things. Let me tell you something. In the moment when you feel dead and something's offering you life, you don't care about consequences. You only care about what it will feel like in that moment. And people's guards and their inhibitions and and everything that has to do with fear-based character will go down in a second if they think that they're, they're going to feel something. I mean, I remember the first time I ever, uh, ever had uh, powerful drugs. Uh, it was when I had malaria. 
And uh, I shouldn't say this on tape because I'm, I'll, I'll sound like an addict right now, okay? But uh, I was in so much pain for, for hours and hours and hours, and they, there was nothing. No water. They didn't take care of me. They left me to, like, languish in the emergency room because they didn't know I had malaria, and they didn't know what, you know, they never dealt with malaria in uh, Suffern. And so, uh, <laughs> you know... You know, so I'm, I'm laying there. They're like, you're not a heart attack victim, you know, and I, I'm telling them I'm dying, but they don't think I am, you know, and, and so they just, they just leave me there for hours, and then I finally get into my, my room, and, and uh, um, I'm laying there, and they, they bring uh, this synthetic morphine for me. I forget the name of it. Um, don't need to know the name, but, uh, but the thing goes in my vein, and the minute it goes in my vein, I can feel it. And I'm sitting there going, and Lisa's talking to me. I said, just shut up right now, dear. <laughs> Everybody be quiet. You know, because I'm going, ooh. Because I can feel it going all through my veins. And, and it's immediate release of pain. And uh, every four hours, they gave me that immediate release of pain. And I would just tell everybody, just leave the room and just leave me alone right now. Let me just have this. I mean, it's, when you are in deep pain, you're in deep suffering, and anything relieves it in that moment. It doesn't care what you're afraid of. It won't matter what your morality even is. Because in that moment, you feel alive, even though it's leading to all kind of deathly consequences. You know, and I, I, I began to realize I can't, I can't really be around pain medications because they're very, very, very addictive to me. And you start to realize there's so many things. Am I making sense to you in this? That unless you have a greater hope, there will be always these temptations and invitations that will destroy even your fears. That's why religion doesn't work. It's because religion is fear-based. It's based on consequences. And even sometimes what happens in religion, you don't get immediate consequences, so you go, hey, this must not be bad. And yet, it's, it's the destructive force. And so, so what we're really talking about is that you and I have to be more than just present. We have to be future-oriented. We have an ultimate future. We have a, a, a truth, an absolute, an ultimate truth that, that, that speaks to us in every situation we find ourselves in. Well, I'm going to talk out of this passage that I read. I want to talk about three things about suffering and about the, how hope enters into suffering. first one is really a simple one. Paul doesn't spend a lot of time on this, but he makes it really clear, and he makes it clear this way. He says, suffering for a believer is inevitable. Say that with me. Suffering for a believer is inevitable. Now, this, this, you may say to me, why are, you, why are you making this point? Because one of the reasons is because as a society, as a culture, we are the first culture that has ever been surprised by suffering. We are the first culture that all we do is complain about whatever suffering we might have. If our download speeds are a little bit slow, we are martyrs. Right? I mean, some of us in this room remember I had a Bible program that had 25,000 diskettes. You know, and I had to, okay, this is uh, verse 3 of this, you know, and you put the whole diskette in just to get your Bible program going on. But there are many of us that, that the idea of inconvenience is suffering to us. A lack of comfort. If I'm not comfortable, it's a, it's a suffering. We're the, do you understand that our forefathers never had this issue? We lose it at death. We lose it. We, we, have, we, have, we have nothing but surprise and shock and anger at death. Those who went before us in other societies, death was as common as anything else as birth. You know, and, and I mean, it may seem weird to you in a sense, but when you go to another country, sometimes when you're in a, like a supermarket, and you smell the meat, and, and, and it's, you, know, you smell the blood and all of that, and I, I get a little sick. I get a little kind of a thing, because I like my meat in packages. 
You know, I like to never know where it came from, play like no one ever suffered to get this steak for me, you know, and, and, and stuff like that. I mean, we have, we have put ourselves into a position where we never have to deal with suffering, and we never really want to deal with death. And yet every culture and society before us, this is, it's so common. And, and loss and hurt and disappointment. We have, for some reason, believed that we should never be disappointed, that we should never suffer a loss, that everything should go our way. And so we have to say this in a sense. Do you understand? If you're going to walk with Jesus, who is the suffering servant of the Lord, who himself suffered an unjust death for justice sake, then you and I are going to see suffering. And it's not going to be just inconvenience. And it's not just going to be discomfort. It's going to be real suffering connected to the sufferings of Jesus. And we follow an apostle who actually prayed, Lord, I want to join in with the fellowship, what? Of your sufferings. So what is Paul talking about here? Well, in verse 16, he kind of makes it really clear. He says, we don't lose heart, even though we are wasting away. And, and, and the way that he phrases this, he uses a tense in the Greek there where he's saying, not just my body is wasting away, although it is interesting, isn't it? As you get older and, and time starts to seem to move faster and, and, and you begin to go, man, what is happening to me? I, every, I don't ever like a photo that's taken of me. I never like a photo that's taken of me until five years later. And then five years later, I go, I looked pretty good back then. <laughs> and then you, you realize, I'm wasting away. I'm wearing down, you know, and I'm wearing out. Some, you know, some of you probably did sports, and now your knees will never be the same. And, you know, or, or, or you can have these, these uh, you know, wrinkles that come up, and I don't care what L'Oreal says, they don't go away, you know. And... <laughs> and and all this stuff that, 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 that just says, I'm waiting. but you're not the only one. The world is experiencing this constant sense of wasting away. And that's what Paul, he's talking about here. He said, you know, everything is steadily falling apart. One of the hardest things for you and I to recognize and, and why it becomes so important that you spend this life well is that you are a wind-up clock, not an electric clock. Now, some of you have probably never done this, but back in the old days, we used to have clocks, and you had to wind them up, and you wound them, and it only, the clock only had the life as long as it was wound. There was not a continuous stream of power to it like an electric clock. Well, your heart, your life is a wind-up clock, and God has wound it to the exact specification of how long you have. And when that winding is ended, when it winds down, when it is over, it is over for you. And so what you have done with that heart of yours and that soul of yours in the midst of that time that you have is very, very important. And one of the things that Paul talks about here is there's a potential in you. There's a potential in your destiny and in your life. There's a potential for greatness. Because he calls it a glory to be received, a glory that's coming. And, and glory has a very beautiful sense to it. It's not the sense of fame. Fame is, fame is something that's, that's kind of silly and superficial. Glory is something that, that by nature has substance to it, has weight to it. It's something that, that, that greatness is, is not just that... that you know, you're a fake or you're, you're known or whatever it is, you're a celebrity. But glory is that where, where it cannot be changed. It is substantial. It has weight. It has the weight. As a matter of fact, you know, back in the 70s and stuff, they used to always use the word heavy. That's heavy, man, you know, kind of a thing. Right there with far out and all that stuff. <laughs> but the idea of heavy was actually true. It was talking about that if something is heavy, it has glory. And so the, 
the, the opportunity for you and the opportunity for me is that, that in that wind-up time of your clock, of your heart, there's the opportunity to do that which has substance, which is heavy, which has glory, which has weight. So that when you're choosing what to do with your life, with your heart, you want to choose that, not which avoids difficulty or that which takes the easiest road, but you begin to realize, I want to take that which is going to make my life heavy, substance. There's a, there's a set of uh, books uh, uh, by an author by the name of Peck uh, from back in the 80s. One of his books is called The Road Less Traveled. And some people have not liked that book because they don't agree with his theology. I think the book is amazing. It was one of the most helpful books to me ever. Uh, Peck was a, he's a believer, but he also was a medical doctor. And he writes in his book uh, 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 an illustration that helped me tremendously to understand my destiny in my life. He tells the story that when he was a resident, he had the value that said, I will not leave my patients until I've finished with them. I will stay with them and I will finish. But he looked at all his other fellow residents and as soon as they were, or interns or whatever it was, as soon as they were finished with their shift, it didn't matter what procedure they were doing, it didn't matter where the patient was, they left and turned it over to another doctor and left. He said what happened to him was, one, he started to get angry because of their carelessness and their selfishness, and then he began to also get angry because he was working all the time and they weren't. So he said, you know, while he was doing what he believed he should do as a, a medical doctor, as a, someone training for, for medicine, he had, was eaten up with jealousy, with a sense of envy, he was eaten up with a sense of judgment, he was eaten up with a sense of condemnation, because as he looked at others, he says, you're just not as committed as me, you're just not, you know, you're, you, you're just not going to be good doctors. And he, what he realized as he, as he looked at that, he said, it was eating him up, it was destroying him to look at life that way. And then he had this revelation or illumination type thing, and he realized, he says, you know, who I am is I'm going to be the guy who stays with my patient to the end. That's who I am. I can't not be that guy. But I also can't live my life upset with others because they're not me. I cannot be bothered with that. I can't let that destroy me that they're not valuing what I value. They don't do it the way I do it. He said, I'm going to do it the way I'm called to do it, and I'm going to leave them to something else. And he said it gave him an incredible sense of his own destiny and his own life. And I don't, is that hitting you like it did me? I looked at that and I said, you know what? I am eaten up with how everybody else is doing their life. I'm mad at them because they, they seem easier than me or they seem like they have more than me. Or I'm upset with them because it seems like they get all the breaks and I don't. I'm still working while they're playing and you know, I don't know if you ever notice this, but there's always, anytime you get a raise, there's always someone who has $100,000 more than you. <laughs> you know, you get a little bit ahead and your friends, oh, well, you know, we have a boat now or whatever, you know, and you're, you, you know, and if you live your life, this little bit of wind up that there is jealous, envious, competitive, Consumed with what others are doing, you will lose your own life and you won't get theirs. See, that's what, this is why this whole idea of understanding, you're going to go through some things that others will not go through. You will encounter some turns and suffering and losses, some insults, some, some hurts, some disappointments that others will not go through. And if you take your eyes off of Jesus and look at everybody else's situation, you will lose your way. And you'll lose your hope. And it is easy, it is easy to get blown off course in the midst of suffering. So the first thing to remember is if you're going to follow Jesus, and I, I tell you, it's worth following Jesus because there's glory. 
It's worth it. But if you're going to, you've got to realize there's inevitability to suffering. Well, then in this passage, he also explains to us that there's a pattern to the suffering. There's a, a way that suffering uh, unpacks in the life of a believer. And he lays this out pretty well in the passage. One of the things that we have to recognize is the reason Paul's writing this passage in First, Second Corinthians on suffering is because his leadership and his apostleship has come under question. And one of the reasons that they're questioning his apostleship is very simply this, Paul suffered more than anybody else. If you read his story of his ministries, you couldn't get in a boat with, with, with Paul and not know it was going to sink. I mean, you get in a boat with this guy, you're like, I, I hope my life insurance is paid up. Because every time he got on the Mediterranean, it sunk. And it says it over and over again. And, and, and other people could sail the Mediterranean and not sink. But Paul, every time, seemed like it happened. You know, he reaches into fire, he pulls out a snake. Don't start fires with Paul. You know, I mean, there's just so many kinds of things that everywhere he goes, he gets, you know, beaten, he gets stoned, he gets all of these things that happen to him, he gets imprisoned, all kinds of stuff. And after a while, his enemies and those who were competitive with him said, how can God be for this guy if everything seems to be against him? I mean, any of you have ever, ever said, and I think some of you have probably said this before, every, nothing ever goes my way. Everything always goes badly for me. Let me tell you, Paul says, if it went bad for you, it's twice as bad for me. Paul was the chief of sinners, and he was the chief of people who had bad things happen to him. Okay, so he's writing this in one sense because one of the things that's being said is you do not have to listen to Paul because God is not with Paul. Now, this is, that was a, an argument almost 2,000 years ago. It's still an argument that people say today. You see somebody who's going through difficulty, and the first thing you ask tends to be is, what sin do they commit? Or the first thing that people ask is, why don't you have more faith? You know, if you had more faith, then you wouldn't have all this suffering. And, and if anybody ever says this to me, and I, I'll put a sign somewhere, and someone says to me, if you had more faith, you would not go through such suffering. I'm going to punch them in the nose, and I would say, if you had more faith, that won't hurt. <laughs> okay, you have enough faith, it won't hurt. All right, because at some point, friends, if you're going to be biblical, and, and, and I'm going to balance this out in a minute, but if you're going to be biblical, you have to realize that suffering actually affirms the gospel. It does not deny it. The very heart of our gospel is a suffering Messiah. At the heart of everything in our history, your history, my history, is where you know, all of the wrath of God met all of the, the uh, innocence and, and holiness of Jesus on a cross where he became sin who knew no sin so that I who do no sin no longer have to live in sin. And not only that, but the heart of the history of what we, what we hold on to is that it didn't end on a cross. It ended in an empty tomb. That Jesus is alive. He's resurrected from the dead. And that in order for there to be resurrection, there has to be death. And so there's a lot that's going on in your life that's a lot deeper. It's not just superficial stuff. There's stuff going on inside of you through the suffering, through the trials, where life is being produced in you that would not be produced in you without death. And it is that difficult. It is that hard. Now, Paul makes it clear that there's, there's an interpersonal aspect of this. I like Keller calls it the interpersonal and the intrapersonal, or the, the you know, intimate or the personal aspect. But the interpersonal aspect is this. And Paul makes it clear. He says, why do you think I'm suffering so much? Why do you think I'm going through all of this? I'm going through it for your sake. And what he's saying is that some things are not achieved. Some things do not happen unless someone is willing to suffer for the sake of others. Unless you're willing to sacrifice, you will not see the ministry in other people's lives that you long to see. 
You will never have a comfortableness in reaching the homeless. It'll never be comfortable for you to heal the sick. It will never be comfortable for you to take sinners and make saints of them. It's never going to be comfortable. Guess what? It's always going to be disappointing. There are going to be insults. People are going to misunderstand you. Those of you who do deliverance and who believe in deliverance, it's a lot like trying to get all the cancer out at once. And when you don't get all the cancer out, the patient turns on you. (laughs) Are you hearing what I'm saying? If you choose to love the unlovable, they will hurt you. If you choose to sacrifice for the needy, they will disappoint you. Do it anyway. Do it anyway. Because that's what Paul's saying here. Paul's saying, do you know why I suffer so much? Do you know why I've been through so many hardships? Do you know why I've experienced it? I've done it for your sake. You would not be reading this letter, he says, if I hadn't suffered. You know, if you want comfortable Christianity, you will never see revival. If you want comfortable consumer Christianity, you will never see miracles. Miracles only take place among desperate people. Miracles only take place when we're really, really needy. I was in Detroit some years ago. Lisa and I were training an intercultural ministry to go to Mexico City. And we went to Detroit and we spent a summer there doing training. And there was this inner city ministry. And there was a, a, a I, can't, I can't remember uh, the pastor's name, but there was a pastor. Who, and I mean, it was in the worst part of Detroit. Although you might say all of Detroit is the worst part. But, uh, but it was really bad. It was a really bad section. I mean, just drug addictions, prostitution, every form of homelessness. I mean, it was just horrible, horrible place. And in the midst of it was this light, this light in the midst of it, this person who had just a heart for the people. And we talked to, we talked to the pastor and said, tell us about this ministry. He said, look, I base everything I do on Jesus' words, the poor you will always have with you. And I, I said, well, he was saying that because he, they, they, you know, they, they were pouring out that offering of the incense and 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 all like that. And how is it you're to, he's saying, I have to understand that the job that I have is not going to be rewarding. He said, I have to understand that what I have here is, has no romance whatsoever to it. That this is nitty, this is gritty, this is dirty. He says, listen, when I, when we are successful, they move. When we successfully lead someone to Christ, disciple them, get them free of the stuff that's in their life, they leave. And we have to start all over again. And he says, I have to just keep reminding myself, Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. I was so moved by that. You see, he's saying, I can handle disappointments. I can handle loss. I can handle the fact that my ministry is never going to be big, never going to be famous. No one's going to know me. I can't even remember his name. But he said, Jesus, put me here. And he said, the poor I will always have with me. And he says, and every day I keep giving, and I keep giving, and I keep giving, and he keeps supplying. You see, there's some aspect where Paul's saying, if you don't know how to suffer, you don't know how to have glory. If you don't know how to suffer, you don't know how to give. If you don't know how to suffer, you don't know how to bring life out of death. I mean, as a parent, this is true. As a husband or a wife, this is true. As a friend. But how much more is it true to those who we need to give to who can give nothing back to us? I mean, we can spend the rest of our days complaining about how bad our culture, our society is. Or we can say, this is a call to sacrifice. You know, and if not us, who? I mean, am I... Getting through to you. I, I thought about this when I when I when I came here. Um, I first came here, and it was so funny. My first day here, and I shared my you know, sermon and shared some testimony and stuff. And there was a, a lady came up to me afterwards, and he goes, "I like your accent, <laughs> but you're not going to last. This is a tough place, and you're not tough enough." 
That was my first Sunday here. Welcome to New York. (laughs) You know, she didn't realize that those words would do something to me. (laughs) And it wasn't turn tail and run. Because at some point, you see, what, what you begin to realize is in order to, in order to suffer for glory's sake, you've got to have a backbone. And the backbone has to be hope. Not just hope of what will happen in New York or hope what will happen in your family or hope, but the bigger hope, the larger hope. Well, uh, in Romans chapter 5, it, he, he kind of illustrates this whole point of, of what it's got to do personally to you. Read this out loud with me. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You know, I talked about the inevitability, but this is the pattern. Look, if you want character, which you may not want, but you need, if you want character, any, any of you wives out there, a husband, you say, well, I, you know, I really want a great wife, I want a great husband. Well, that has to do with character. And, and so one of the issues that, that the Bible says is that the pattern is that suffering produces character. You begin to see what you're made of, and then that produces hope because you begin to have, you begin to have a backbone. You begin to have something that actually makes you stand up instead of being bowed down, you know, and you begin to be able to, you begin to, be able to see that you have greater potential than you ever thought before. Well, the idea behind this is, is, is simple in something that Jesus said. Um, if you take, for example, just the acorn, you could take any seed, but you take an acorn, and in one acorn is actually the potential and the power to, to populate an entire continent with trees. In just one acorn, there is the potential to populate an entire continent with trees. But in order for that one acorn to realize its potential, what has to happen? It has to fall to the ground and die. And so here's the deal with hope. And this is why our hope has to be substantive is because in order for you to reach your destiny and your potential, you as a seed have to fall to the ground and die. Uh, Ron has talked about this in some of his classes. I've talked about it with students. I'm sure Frank has, Wanda has, that every one of us who've seen great things of God have first seen a vision die. And that vision was often what I would call our wish vision or our idealized view of the world. We had to have that little boy dream or the little girl dream had to die so that God could resurrect the true vision of your life. Well, when what you've hoped for your whole life dies, part of you dies. And many of us have experienced death financially. We've experienced death career-wise. We've experienced relationship death. We've experienced all kinds of hopes and dreams that we thought would make us substantive or make us heavy or glorious or happy or sustained or whatever it is. We've seen them die. We've seen a dead end to something we thought would be the street of our life. Well, that had purpose to it. It had the purpose of really producing life. But if you give up when it dies, then you don't get to experience resurrection. I mean, we are the people who don't believe death is the end for us. We're the people who believe death is a a beginning. Well, um, Dan was talking about this a little earlier. I talked about it last week. Let me just remind you, many of us are heavily influenced by stoicism. It has creeped in as if it is Christian. It is not Christian. Stoicism is a guarding of your heart by hardening your heart. That is not biblical. That is not truthful. It is not genuine. So Lewis said this, and I think this is helpful. He said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. 
Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it safe in the casket. Safe, dark, motionless, airless. It will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy is damnation. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. I think that's a great quote. Some of you in here, you have made statements, you have made oaths that are hardening your heart, and then you wonder why you don't feel very much. See, every time you come, every Sunday you come, I, I, I can tell you this with all guarantee, all assurance and conviction, the Holy Spirit is here pouring love on your heart. But if your heart is a granite countertop, all it does is bounce off. If your heart is already filled with so much anger and shame and guilt and fear, then there's no room for that love to fit. So there's this sense in which you can say and pray, oh, fill me, Holy Spirit, but there also has to be the prayer that says, I'm willing to empty. I'm willing to be vulnerable. And more than anything else, where this counts is that you have to be able to, you know, because it's easy in a way to say, I, I empty me, you know, you know and, and be full of it. What's harder to say is, Lord, I'm willing to love. Because love is where you get hurt. I mean, I hate this with all of my heart, but it's true. No one has ever hurt my wife like I have. Because no one has ever been as close to her as I have. I've disappointed her. I've said hurtful things to her. I've crushed her. I've, I've, I've done things that were utterly shameful. You know, and for her, it would have been easy to put the, put the Teflon up. It would have been easy for her to put the granite up. You know, it would have been easy to put the wall up. But she chose instead, even when she found out all the negatives that there would be to live with me. She said, I don't want to live with anybody else. And, 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 and inside the shield that she has, I get to live. Inside the the circle of what's close to her, I stay. Now, I've learned to be a better person inside of there, and it has made a difference in her life to be near me, but it cost her everything to be my wife, and yet she chose to do it. Now, now I'm forever grateful for that, but even more than that, I don't think I would have understood the love of God if I had not had the love of my wife. Because she chose, knowing all the conditions, she chose to love me unconditionally. She chose to sacrifice for me. And I can stand up here and say to you, I know the love of God because I have known the love of my wife. And, and see, that, that's what this passage is about. This passage isn't about how do I avoid getting hurt? How do I escape getting hurt? How do I play like I'm not hurt? This passage is about how do I go through the hurt and the loss and the disappointments and the pain? How do I go through it and have hope? Well, Paul says it this way. It's pretty, pretty powerful. He says, you know, Jesus was raised from the dead. The very meaning of history is that life comes out of death. Out of devastation comes redemption. Now, if you'll track with me just for a little while longer on this, this is an important part. And the reason I brought it in is because it, it helps make us understand, because this could all be very, very romantic and ethereal and, you know, just very spiritual. Wow. Yeah. Okay. But Paul, Paul brings it into life. And he says, look, I have this thorn in my flesh. Now, many of you in this room might have an opinion about the thorn in the flesh. But the truth is, Paul doesn't explain what the thorn is. And, and uh, one guy was saying, he said, there have been thousands of dissertations written just on the thorn in the flesh, and we still don't know 
exactly what the thorn is in flesh. But we know that in some way, being a thorn, it was painful. Being uh, present meant that he, he was pretty much constantly dealing with it. And then we also know that he asked God over and over again to get rid of it. And the answer was no. I mean, here... For all of the people who say, if you have enough faith, you won't have any problems, Paul kind of flies in the face of that. And he actually says, this was something I asked God to take from me. It's painful to me. It's hurtful to me. It's difficult to me. It even seems like in some ways it handicapped him. And yet what he's saying is, God said, I'm not taking it away from you. And then the Lord gives him a revelation. (laughs) You know, I might be in Paul's place and go, Lord, I don't care about the revelation. Just get rid of the thorn. You know, and, and, and then, but Paul says the revelation was enough that his grace, that God's grace was sufficient for the thorn. Wow. Doesn't that remind you in some ways of Jesus? Didn't he go to the Father and say what? Take this thorn. He called it a cup. Take this. If, if there is a way that you could take this thorn from me, if you could take this cup from me, but if not, then not my will, but yours be done. Well, what, what is Paul saying? What is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying that there are times that there are certain sufferings in your life that without those sufferings, life doesn't come. Some of you, the job you have right now, you might be saying, God, take this from me. It's a thorn. Take it from me. And he's saying, no, this is the way I want, this is the way I want life to come. Now, this is really powerful if you think about it because Jesus uncomplainingly suffered infinitely. You know, what happened on the cross was not like any suffering you've ever had. He, he had, who had always known intimacy and oneness with the Father, when he became the curse for our sins, he immediately felt the separation from the Father. He felt the weight of all our sin. He who knew no sin became sin. The very Son of God experienced infinite suffering in his season on the cross. He did so without complaint. What Paul is basically saying here is if you and I can learn to deal with our finite suffering, you know, I, don't, I don't even begin to understand infinite suffering, but the idea of, here of what I have is finite. In other words, it has an end to it. It is not that, you know, you and I sometimes what happens is we think because it feels like it has no end, that therefore it has no end. But everything you're suffering is finite. It's transient. It's only for a season. And if you can learn to do that without complaining, as Jesus did, then what will happen is your suffering will become a sacrifice like Jesus' sacrifice. And what you're paying and what you're what you're. Um, Uh, paving the way for and what you're making possible is life like Jesus made life possible every single time that you just that you suffer and you complain you lose the sacrifice because because now you're asking for payment you're asking for a negotiation you're trying to get leverage so that you don't have to hurt anymore, so you don't have to be disappointed, so you don't have to incur insults. Instead of recognizing that by suffering with hope, what you're doing is you're paying a price for your family. You're paying a price for your church. You're paying a price for your community. It's like that person in Detroit. They never, no one knows their name even. No one knows about that church. No one writes up some big thing. But in heaven, there will be glory because they're known in heaven. And because of every single person that they saved out of, that, out of the pit, every person they saved from death and hell, every single one of them will be a testimony to the, the value of the suffering that was done without complaining. They brought life where there was death. They came in and they died in the death so that life could be birthed in the, other, in the others. If you live in Nyack, there's death in Nyack. If you want to see life in Nyack, you have to enter into the death of Nyack. Here in New City, there's materialistic death. You have to enter into it. You have, to, you have to be willing to suffer for it. You have to be willing to be poor among the rich so that the rich can really experience the life of Jesus. 
Now, I, I get excited about this. Am I getting it across, though? You see, I don't even have the time to tell you about the future aspects of this other than just briefly. I mean, not only is there, in this moment, there are things that are going on. But Paul compares in 4.8 uh, and 1.8, he, he, he makes it clear. He said in 1.8, he says, you know, I, don't, I want you to be aware, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced. Now, the affliction that he experienced was so burdensome to him that it went beyond his strength and he despaired of life itself. Some of you have made the mistake of thinking because you know that verse that says he will give you no more than you can bear, that you know how much you can bear. The real issue is that you and I have comfort zones that say, I don't want to feel this, but we need to break forth from those. And so he gives us what feels like more than we can bear. And then 4.8, Paul's describing the situation from perspective of later and he says it this way, I was perplexed, but I'm not driven to, to despair. I persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. In other words, there's this beautiful balance that happens in hope where you're totally honest about what it feels like. Now, I, see, this is different than complaining. Complaining is when you begin to conclude things about what you feel. This isn't fair. How does this, why does this always happen to me? That's complaining. You know, it's always, you know, I always get the shaft. I always get the, the short end of the stick. That's complaining. But when you say, this is perplexing. This is difficult. This is hard. You're just being honest at that point. You're being real. You're being genuine. But what Paul says is as you go through it and it feels overwhelming and you begin to want to despair, remember that in the midst of this is a hope that transcends this circumstance and says, I might be perplexed, but I'm not going to be driven to despair. Say that with me. I might be perplexed, but I'm not going to be driven to despair. I'm persecuted, but not forsaken. I'm struck down, but I'm not destroyed. Now, there's some of you... I, 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 I just feel the spirit on this for a moment, Okay. There's some of you, you're in trials right now. You're in suffering. Okay? If, it, if you're in a trial, you're in a, a time of suffering, you're in something financial relationship, would you just stand up for me? You're in, you're in a physical trial, your physical health, you're in a difficult circumstance, something that you feel might be somewhat hopeless in many ways. Okay? There's, whoa, lots. Are the rest of you lying? No, okay. All right, look around the room. There's lots, right? Okay, if, if, uh, if you're together as a couple, would you hold on? If you're, if you're not as a couple, would you hold on to somebody behind you, around you? Just kind of take hand, take arm, you know? Okay, I don't know which one of these it is. Perplexed, you know, you can feel confusion, you can feel uncertainty, a lack of clarity, okay? You don't know when it's going to end, you don't know how it's going to end, you don't know what's going to happen, all of those things, all right? So I want you to, if, if, it's, if it's uncertainty that you're dealing with, I want you to do something for me. I want you to take your fist, you know, the one you're not holding in somebody else's hand, Take your fist, and I want you to put it like a stake in the ground. Stake in the ground. Okay? I might, and right now, you can say, I feel perplexed. Say it. I feel, I feel, uncertain, I feel uncertain. But I choose not to despair. I not to despair. No, that's, that's good. Come on, do it again, okay? Perplexed. perplexed uncertain, uncertain. But I choose not to despair. Mm, okay. Are there any of you that is where you feel like you're harassed? You feel like you're being persecuted. You're being hindered. You're you're being you know betrayed, insulted. You're being uh, let down. That that's the idea here. So say say same thing with the hand. Persecuted, persecuted. but not forsaken. But not forsaken. You know what that means. I'm not alone. I'm not alone. 
Say it with me. I'm not alone. I will not go through this alone. Do you know why that's important? It's because in the midst of trials, it's easy to think you're all alone. And when you do that, you lose heart. Okay, so say it one more time. I am not forsaken. I am not forsaken. This is only temporary, what you're going through. Okay, now, if you have failed, whether it's your fault or someone else's fault, or, you know, you feel like it's a dead end, you've been struck down is the idea, but in this, chant, in, this, in, in this verse it says, but not destroyed. So let's say this together, okay? Struck down. Struck down. Dead, end. dead end. Failure. Failure. But not destroyed. So you have to have both. You have to have the honesty of the situation and then the truth of the future that is a certainty. You are not driven to despair because God is with you in this. He has not forsaken you. And even though you might feel like you've been destroyed, you have not been because you are in union with resurrection life. One more time. Just put that, put that hand there. You know, whether it's, whether it's perplexed, persecuted, or struck down, whichever one, you have a hope. You're calling to the future. You're calling to the future. And the future is not based in what you've done or what you're going to do, but what, based on what the Lord has done for you and what He has for you, the resources He has. I, I just I ask you to close your eyes. I ask everyone to stand with me right now. And just to close your eyes. What I see... Hmm, I see doors opening. And in there are resources. Like some of the doors are vaults. So financial resources are being released. Would you just say in hope... By your promises, Lord, I see the resources coming. Some of you, it's financial resources. I see some doors opening that have been closed for careers, for jobs, for situations that uh, have been hopeless and and for breakthroughs. Uh, Breakthroughs with employers, breakthroughs uh, with the type of work that you do. Just believe the Lord. Begin to speak it. It doesn't mean it happens overnight, but you're calling to it because it's your future. For some of you, it's, it's changes that are coming, but the changes are going to position you in a place to redeem the pain that you've had in your circumstances. Would you, would you hold on to this truth with me that if a seed falls to the ground, if a seed falls to the ground, then it springs up in multiplied life. Many of you, what's going on in your life is you fall into the ground so that that hard outer shell dies and so the life of the seed can come forth. The Lord does this and He superintends it and He does it well. Would you let Him do that for you? Would you hold on to hope today? Can we say that together? Lord, I hold on to hope today. Your promises are certain. You have not forsaken me. You have not let me be destroyed. I will be raised up into newness of life. And my sacrifice and my suffering will have meaning not only for me, but for those around me. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you give each other a hug and go home? Great use of that verse. <laughs> yeah. That's Anytime good. you're just using the scriptures and stuff, there's so much more power. Not my words.
You died in my place, so my soul will live and also be like you. They give all I have just to know you. Jesus, there's no one beside you. Forever the hope in my heart. Death, where is your sting? Your power is as dead as my sin. The cross has taught me to Trouble shall come. 